You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, church. My name is Wesley, and today we continue in our study in Romans, perhaps coming to one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. As one writer says, if the Bible is a series of mountain ranges, then the epistles to the Romans is the highest peak in the Bible, and the chapter 8 of Romans is the highest peak in Romans. If you were writing an album for the book of Romans, this would be the hit soundtrack that would play on the radio. As John Piper said, the greatest book in the world is the Bible, the greatest letter in that book is Romans, and the greatest chapter in that letter is chapter 8. A lot of people would look at this passage and say it is filled with so much truth, so profound, so beautiful, so great, that the only way that I think I can truly illustrate the transition from Romans 7 to the beauty and the greatness of the beginning of Romans 8 is by showing you one of the greatest movie scenes, one of the greatest movies of all time, the Battle of Helm's Deep in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the second movie. Yes, it has been... Guys, it has been several months since I have done a Lord of the Rings reference, okay? (laughs) And that is huge because I am such a big fan. In fact, in high school, one of my nicknames was one of the characters from Lord of the Rings. It wasn't a character like Aragorn, who's cool, uh, who fights in this uh, battle scene, um, or Legolas or Gandalf. It was actually Smeagol. Um, But we will... uh, That just shows you how much of a fan I am. We'll get to that another day. Another illustration, another time. Let's go back to the battle. This battle is considered uh, one of the best battle scenes ever featured in television, and and definitely in the Middle Earth saga. In fact, the screen time for this battle is 40 minutes, which is remarkable. It is a battle between evil and good. The orcs of Isengard are attacking the men of Rohan, as well as this small little battalion of elves, which we'll argue whether or not they should have been there in the movie. Um, but, but they're there, and, and they're backed against the wall in this kind of almost bunker-like uh, fortress called Helm's Deep. It's dark. It's rainy. It is a lopsided battle. Evil is prevailing throughout the night. But there's this one glimmer of hope that was left in the words of Gandalf to Aragorn. He says, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Dawn begins to crack, and in one of the most epic moments in movie history, Gandalf and the horsemen burst forth with light, as you see in this scene, violently coming down the mountainside. And with the beam of light shining full force behind them, they overwhelm, and the, the, the enemy is pushed back and they're empowered to win the battle. Now, I bring this scene up for us today because I think Romans 8 is just like this for us today. It is bursting forth in full light for us, and necessarily so, because if you look back at Romans 7, you see Paul is in a moment of darkness. He is in a moment where he is battling with the darkness of his own soul, as we saw last week, and he says things like this, what I want to do, I do not do, and what I do, I do not want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, he is saying, just like the soldiers in Helm's Deep, how are we going to make it through the night? How, How can I overcome this? And then the light begins to dawn, just a little bit. 
Gandalf comes up on that hill. And then Romans 8, 1 comes, full on, the sun is shining, the glory is shining, and Paul is reminded in the depth of his soul, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are not sweeter words to hear today than that truth. And it resonates so deeply with us because we know the darkness of our souls. We know what it's like to be in a place where we say, I don't want to do this, but I do it, and what I want to do, I do not do. We know what it's like to be the wretched man that Paul says he is. We know that no matter how much we put together on the outside of how we're feeling today, we know that there is within us times when we feel like those soldiers in a deep bunker of our own souls, our backs are against the wall, the enemy is coming, and we just feel in a moment like I'm overwhelmed by the sin of this broken world. And we look to God and we say, God, how can I be yours and deal with this? How can I possibly be yours with what I've done in my life? And the guilt becomes so great on our souls. And our strength seems so frail and so weak that we cry out, how can I even be a child of yours, God? I don't understand how. And then Romans 8 burst on the scene for us today. And Paul is using this passage to pierce right through the darkness of our souls. He is coming and he is reminding us that something has changed for the life of the Christian. Something has come inside of us that has unearthed that darkness so that the God who says, let there be light, can shine light on our souls. And what is that? That is the Spirit of God who comes inside us and changes us and empowers us and frees us so that we can actually live as those who we are children of God. And that is our main idea today. And we're going to see this light burst forth in this text, and it's going to shine bright. And it's simply this, that the Spirit of God empowers us, Christians, empowers you to live free. In other words, as Paul's been giving us this this full argument up to this point of how we're justified by faith in Jesus, when we we are justified by faith in Jesus, when we put our faith in him, we are set free from condemnation and we are alive in the Spirit. And that's what we're going to see today from the text. Two points flowing straight from our passage today. We're going to see how when we experience this transformation, we get a new nature in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, a new reality that is ours, a new fact of our identity. And then we're going to see how that then produces a new ambition, a new purpose for living, a new ambition that drives us in our living in this life. And so let's dive into this glorious text today and waste no time. Verse 1. There is therefore. Now that word therefore is a transition word. And it's not just referring back to the few sentences Paul just wrote. What Paul has in mind as he's writing this is he is thinking about everything that he has written up to this point in the epistle. He is going all the way back to chapter 1. He is reminding himself as he writes this of the power of God unto salvation for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Why is that good news? Because as he wrote in chapter 2 and as he reminded us in chapter 3, there is a problem with humanity that we've all rebelled against God. And that problem has led to sin and death. But praise be to God, he has not left us in our helpless state as Paul reminds us through his argument of the first few chapters of Romans. That there is a way for us to be made right with God and it is through his unmerited grace. It is through his unmerited favor, the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not through our works, but through trusting in Christ and what he has done justifies us before God. 
And Paul even recognizes in that state that there's still a struggle between his old nature and this new life in Christ in chapter 7. And with all that in his mind, he writes these sweet words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now what Paul starts here with is a fact. This is not an opinion. It's not something that we hope happens. He says there is a fact here that certain people in this world do not have condemnation hanging over their heads anymore. He says there are people, yes, they're sinners. Yes, they're prone to, to sinful motives. Yes, they're prone to lust and pride and, and, and deceit and lies. Yes, all that is true. But there are certain people in this world that are not frightened by death and judgment anymore because there is no condemnation for them. It is an absolute expression he's using here. He's not saying, well, maybe, or maybe there's a little bit. He says, no, full stop. There is absolutely none at all. That there are people who can live in this world and, and have a true hope that when they die, there is nothing that they could be frightened of. No pain, no punishment, no condemnation. Now, who could be in such a marvelous position that receives that not guilty verdict from God? Well, he says at the end of verse one, they are those who are in Christ Jesus. And we've seen that phrase pop up more and more times. It's, it's one of uh, Paul's most famous uh, statements, in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? How do we get into Christ Jesus? We've sinned, we've failed. What does it mean to get into Christ Jesus? Well, verse 2 gives us a little bit of indication of what's happened. He says, for the law of the Spirit, and that word law there is just a word for principle or the way of living, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or the principle of sin and death. In other words, what Paul is saying is that for the Christian, those who are in Christ, they have a new law in the land of their souls. They have a new principle in which they're living by. The old law, the law of the flesh that led to sin and death, that was the kind of law, the principle that we live by. We say, hey, I'll do it on my own. I'm the master of my own soul. I am the leader. I believe I can be good enough. I believe I can measure up. And we know, as Paul's already articulated, that that will fail time and time again. And so there's a new law of the Spirit that now so identifies you with Christ by faith that we're united with him, which means that when the Spirit is in us, this new law of the Spirit, it sets us free because Christ himself is now covering you. That means your, his righteousness, his status, his goodness is what God sees when he looks at us. Now, how could that be? Well, look at verse 3. He says, this is what's happened. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And what, what Paul's saying here is something has to change for us to experience this truth and this reality of no condemnation. Something within us has changed. And, and, and look, we want to see change at the deepest levels. All of us do. We, we all want to, to, to be better than who we are today. But oftentimes we look at things that cannot actually help us in doing that. And what he calls that is the flesh. What, he, what he's referring to here is that we, we desire to be better than we are, and we look to the, the things of the flesh to do that. And that's not just moral bad behavior when we use the word the flesh there. It does mean that, but it means something much greater, much wider, much bigger than that. 
uh, the, the idea of living in the flesh is living in the human systems and the human strength that we so rely on to get what we want and what we think we desire and deserve apart from God. And we all do it. We all have systems and strengths and things that we rely on in this life to try to better ourselves. But the problem is that the flesh has this self-sabotaging dynamic. The thing that it says it promises it can't deliver. And so we're constantly striving and we're never satisfied. We're never able to live up. We're never able to, to receive the joy of this life that we think we deserve. And time and time again we fail. And so what he says here is that God has to intervene. And Paul actually says something very striking. He says that that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's a huge statement. That the very law of God, as you look in the Old Testament, going back to the Ten Commandments, the very law of God was weakened by our flesh, he says. That because our flesh has an inability to actually reform us like we want it to, it, it actually did something opposite of what it was supposed to accomplish. It had a greater pull on our hearts than the curving power of the law. Let me use an illustration of, of what, what I mean by this. Uh, take peanuts, for example. Peanuts are a good food, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're fruit, I just realized that recently. Um, they're, they're a good thing, they're, they're, good, they're good nutrients, right? You eat it and it actually can bring substance and life to you. But there are certain people that because of their body, that if they actually eat peanuts, it causes an allergic reaction that could lead to death. Now, now what's the problem? Is, is the peanut the problem or something in their body the problem? something in their body, right? And, and that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying the Bible tells us over and over again that the law is good. It's not, the problem's not with the law, he says here. The problem is in us. It is something within us. Our, our sin, our, 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 our flesh is weak. It's wicked. And Paul is saying here that the sin is like this alien power that, that resides within us, and it has such a strong pull in our lives that it, it actually uses the law to bring about condemnation and death. And so what, what are we left with? Well, God intervenes on our behalf. Look what it says. He intervenes by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He intervenes through Christ who put on our flesh. And he lived uh, in this life. He kept the law perfectly. It, it didn't just mean that he followed a bunch of rules. It meant that every moment of his life, he delighted in his father's will. He perfectly kept the law. He experienced the, the life of a law keeper, but he experienced the death of a lawbreaker. And he did that for us. Christ goes to the cross and he experiences divine judgment and the curse of the law, as the text says here. He, he lived the life of a law keeper, but he died the death of a lawbreaker. Why? Because he loves lawbreakers like us. And he loves us so much that it says that he condemns sin in the flesh meaning he went and experienced condemnation for our sins so that we would not have to experience condemnation for our sin. That is what's being said here. And, and, and why is this such a beautiful thing? Because to be in Christ, as he says at the beginning here, to be in Christ means that everything that is his belongs to us. What is true of Christ now becomes true of you. What belongs to him now becomes a part of you. And who does this work for us? Who applies this to our lives? Well, the text says here, it is the Spirit. The Spirit of God applies who Christ is and all that he has done for us to our lives. So when the Spirit comes in, he doesn't just say to us, hey, look at Jesus, why don't you live like him? That's not what he does. No, no, he says, look at Jesus and that's how the Father sees you now. 
Because everything that Christ has done for you has now been applied to you, and everything that you did has now been applied to Christ on the cross for you. That's what it means to be in Christ. It doesn't mean that when the Spirit of God comes into us, He doesn't just give us a new set of rules to live by. No, He he reminds us that we have a new status. We have a new nature now. When God looks at us, He looks at us differently. He sees us differently. We have been identified now with Christ. We We don't live in our flesh anymore, that old nature. We live in a new nature. Now, if we live in the flesh, if we live in that old nature, that means this, that our past, that our, our past, everything that we've done, who we are, all that will, will inevitably define our present and our future realities. If we live in the flesh, then what we've done, we, can, we, we will always have that in the back of our minds. We'll always feel shame and guilt for what we have a, tried to accomplish and failed to do. It will always define our present and will always define our future. But for the Christian, that's not what happens anymore. You're not defined by your past mistakes anymore. Because for the Christian, when you're in Christ, what happens is the, the past, present, and future of Christ becomes now your past, present, and future. As if you're a Christian today, if you're in the Spirit, then the Spirit is in you. That is a fact of reality. That there's no condemnation for you is a, not just an opinion, not just a good word. It is a reality that you're living in now as a believer. And so that means if you this week had a bad week and you're a Christian, then guess what? You had a bad week in the Spirit. So there's now no condemnation for you. If you look at your life and you say, I have failed morally this week, then guess what? If you're a Christian, you failed morally, but guess what? You did it while being in the Spirit, which means that there is now no condemnation for you. Because for the Christian, when we're united to Christ, we didn't earn that. That's just who we are now. That is our new nature. All the benefits of Christ and the status of Christ has now belong to us, and the Spirit then applies that to us. That is our new nature. That is who we are. That's who we belong to. That's our past, present, and future. That's what defines us at the very moment as we sit in these chairs today. Free from condemnation and alive in the Spirit. That is our new nature. Now, if that is who we are, as Paul is painting this beautiful picture, this reality, that is who we are, then, then, then what does that mean for our living? Well, that means that he creates in us a new ambition, a new purpose, a new, a new inspiration for how we live. And look at what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, we are now those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. For the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, what Paul is saying here is you have a new status. You have a a new identity. You you have a new nature. You were in Christ, and therefore go walk in that new life. (coughs) Live in that new reality. Paul's encouragement here is to walk in the new nature of who we are, to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. And as verse 10 reminds us that the Spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, because we are made right with Christ, we desire to live in righteousness now because we've been covered with it because we're already covered with the righteousness. We're already clothed with it, and now we want to walk in it. 
So our new nature leads us to a new ambition for living. It leads us to a new way in which we view the world around us. Now it's interesting, he uses a contrast here. He contrasts what it looks like to walk and live and set our minds on things of the flesh and what it means to walk, live, and set our minds on things of the spirit. And they're, they're very opposite. The end result is very opposite. One is life and peace. One is sin and death. Now notice what he doesn't contrast here. He doesn't contrast, uh, don't, uh, don't walk in the spirit, walk in obedience. Or excuse me, don't, don't walk in the flesh, walk in obedience. He doesn't say, don't live in the flesh, uh, live in obedience, o- obey me. That's not what Paul's communicating here. He's not just saying, I have saved you to, to live in a different standard or a set of rules. No, no, no. He says, walk and live in the Spirit. What he means by this is this is a new reality, a relational reality of how we live. He's not just promising us a new, a new way of life to live. Or excuse me, that's exactly what he's promising, actually. He's promising something much bigger than just a set of rules. He's promising us a new way of life to live, a relational life with, with God. And Jesus actually writes something very similar to this in John 15. He tells us, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Because from apart from me, you can do nothing. Now notice what what Jesus is not commanding us. His commandment is not go bear fruit. His commandment is not do this, this, and this. His commandment is to abide in him. And that's very similar to what Paul's writing here. He's saying live in the spirit. Walk in the spirit. Set your minds on things of the spirit. Not simply make sure you obey me, although that is an application of it, No, he's sharing that we now have a new life to live, a new ambition, a new desire, a new purpose, a new hope, a new future. It's so much bigger than that. Uh, um, Imagine this way. My my daughter, Ellie, uh, she occasionally loves to dress up like me at the house. So she'll sometimes put on my 11-size shoes, and she'll put on one of my T-shirts, and she'll put on the hat, she'll walk away, and she'll pretend that she's me. And uh, sometimes she says very endearing things, though, where she'll say, like, I can't wait till I grow up to be as big as you, Dad. And, you know, it just kind of breaks my heart. But, um, you know, let's just say for a moment that I'd say, okay, Ellie, since you, you can't wait to, to grow up to, to be as big as me one day, um, I'm going to give you one of my shirts, and I'm going to give you a pair of my shoes. And, and every day she wakes up and she puts that shirt on and she puts those, those shoes on and it's clunky and it's awkward and it's way too big. But every day she is so motivated by not only the, the love of her dad, but she's motivated by the fact that she is becoming more like her dad. That Every day she puts on those things, she stares in the mirror, and even though they're awkward, they're clunky, they're way too big for her, she looks at that mirror, mirror and she envisions the day where she will fit into her father's clothing. Because she knows that every day she's growing, she is growing in a trajectory to fit into the image of her father. That's what the Spirit does. It is a new life we're living, and every single day, as clunky as it is, every single day we are being fitted in the image of our Father. And that some days we might feel incredibly small still, and there's some days we might feel that we are far from being like Christ. But the promise here is that when we are in Christ, the Spirit now comes and dwells in you, and that is a permanent residence. Notice what he says in verse 9, that the Spirit of God dwells in us. He is reinforcing the fact that he is not talking about an occasional visitor, right? This isn't your grandma visiting you every now and then on vacation. He is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, it is permanent. 
He has taken up permanent residence in us. He will never leave us. He is not going to get out of our system once he gets in our system. And what he's referring to here is the Holy Spirit really has kind of an opposite effect on us than a sickness does, right? When, when a sickness enters our body, right, it comes in our body, and, and it, it, uh, over time it can overtake our systems. But what does it do? It, it actually leads to less health for our bodies. But when the Spirit of God comes in, he takes over our system, and he actually leads us to more and more health and more and more into the image of Christ. And every single day, he is forming us more and more into who Christ is. He is giving us a delight and a pleasure into who we are made to be. As one commentator puts it this way, he says, life in the Holy Spirit is the highest form of life. In other words, what he means there is that as human beings, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are living in a higher dimension of life and reality than any other life form. Why is that true? Because the things that, that used to uh, be so weird, obscured, and foreign to us become true to us. The realities of God become more and more true to our hearts. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Things like wisdom that we used to not embrace, we now embrace because we're not blind to it anymore. Things like sin that we used to love, we now hate. We, we begin to treasure truth that we once resisted. In that process, the Bible says, we call it sanctification. And really what that looks like is over time, our greatest pleasure in life becomes being led by the Spirit to make much of Jesus every single day. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It, it is like a new way of looking at life. That's what Paul's painting a picture here for us. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has not risen, or excuse me, that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And we used this quote before, but what C.S. Lewis is saying is because the Holy Spirit, he is now awakened. He is now awakened to the truth. That the invisible God is now more real to him than the things that he sees with his eyes. And because the invisible God is now more real to him, it changes the way he sees everything else. And so how does this practically apply to the Christian life? What does it like to walk in the Spirit? What is it like to, to live in the Spirit? Well, here's just a few things that changed when we were walking and living in the Spirit. Number one is how we read our Bibles. Right? Well, be, before the walk in the Spirit, before even uh, being filled with the Spirit, when you read your Bible, it just was weird, right? I mean, anybody have that moment? I remember when I was like, the Bible is just weird. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. It's weird. It's awkward. I don't understand it. But then all of a sudden, you're filled with the Spirit. And there's parts of the Bible that still seem a little weird. But more and more, you're able to, to seek the kingdom of God, and he begins to light up your heart to the realities of who he is in the scriptures. And even the hardest parts of scriptures become things that you're drawn to because you want to surrender your life to it, because you know that, that, that the more in which you are alive and awakened to the realities of who God is in his word, the more healthier you are as a human being. The more surrendered you become to the things in his word, the, the more alive you become. But it's not just the way we relate to his word, it's also how we relate to his people, the church, right? Isn't it amazing how when, when the Spirit comes, it, it just, it, it reminds us that we have more in common with people who are united to Jesus than our next door neighbor, than the person that we have everything in common with except Jesus. Isn't it amazing that, that the Holy Spirit draws our hearts and we begin to be drawn to people who share that same Spirit? That even if we have nothing else in common, that is enough to tether our hearts to them and say they are our family. We begin to be drawn into the body of Christ by his spirit because that to walk in the spirit, to live in the spirit is to walk with his people. 
but then it also changes the way in which we look at people outside. The, the Spirit unlocks a, a compassion within us, a concern for those who, who are not in Christ, a mission-mindedness for people who are not living in this new life in the Spirit, a, an otherworldly compassion for those as the Spirit inhabits our life, a new ambition that leads us to Jesus each and every day to feel his pleasure, to desire him, to, to, to want to walk with him, to be who we were created to be. Now that is one aspect of this new ambition, that as we live in the Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit, we desire that our greatest pleasure be led by the Spirit each and every day, to see more and more of Jesus in our lives. But it also has another effect, and the other effect is we become more aggressive towards sin in our lives, right? It, it leads us to desire more holiness, to be more like our Father, to, to grow up in those clothes each and every day, but it also leads us to have a more aggressive attitude towards sin in our lives, the, the sin that Paul says leads to death. In essence, it should make us feel nauseated when we revert back to living in the flesh. It's like when you make those late night decisions that are just bad for you. And, and what I mean specifically is when you're hungry. You know, it's late, you're hungry, there's not a lot of good options, and that neon light of Taco Bell is just drawing you in. <laughs> you know it's not good. You know there's nothing healthy on that menu, and you do it anyways, right? And what, what happens? You immediately begin to regret it. Either that night or early in the morning, <laughs> you begin to regret it. Why, why, why do you begin to regret it? Because, because you, you've been trained to, to, to seek healthier things in life. You know there are things that are better for you, right? And that's the same way of living in the Spirit. Living in the Spirit shows us that, that because we're alive in the Spirit, we become nauseated by our choices to revert back to the flesh. And Paul points a picture, paints a picture for us in Romans 7 of this, right? He's frustrated with his own struggle with coveting the 10th commandment. It, it nauseates him to think about going against God, betraying God in any way, shape, or form. And, and the, the thing that nauseates him about that is because he knows God's love for him. He knows there's no condemnation for him, and he knows at the end of Romans 8 that there's no separation for him. And that's what leads him and drives him to be nauseated in, his, in the pit of his soul when he reverts back to something he knows is not good for him. And if there's a practice of sin in our lives that doesn't spark something in us, that doesn't make us want to run back to life in the Spirit, then that should be a cause of great concern. Because we're going to fall. We're going to sin. But the question happens, uh, the question is, what happens to our disposition when we do? Are we just bored with sin? Are we apathetic towards it? Have we forgotten for the one who has taken up residence within us? Or are we nauseated by it? Are we nauseated by the, the destructiveness of, of reverting back to life in the flesh? Like David did when he, in Psalm 51, when he, he committed adultery and murder, he comes to the Lord and, and he comes with a contrite and broken spirit. And he asked the Lord to restore the joy of his salvation. You know why? Because the greatest fear for somebody who is filled with the Spirit is not condemnation. You're free from that. It's not death. You, will, you, you are promised resurrection from that. The greatest fear is forsaking and missing out on the joys of fellowship with God that is yours right now. It is reverting back to that late night Taco Bell when you know better and you have access to better because God has come to live within you and he has promised you resurrection. Let's end here with verse 11. 
For if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This passage ends with such incredible sense of hope and assurance for us. In one sense, this passage should thrill us in our hearts. In another sense, it should challenge us. It should thrill us because as he reminds us again that the Spirit dwells in you, the Spirit comes and he makes his presence permanent. That again, he's reminding us in verse 11 that when God resides in us, it doesn't say, well, you know, sometimes you might experience freedom from condemnation, but then when you sin, you might experience condemnation. That's not what he's saying. No, no, no. Relationship with God is not the the kind of like picking off the flower petals with the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. That's not how Jesus treats his relationship with us. He doesn't say he loves me. No, he loves you. That's it. He didn't just pay for some of your sin. No, he paid it all for you. That's final. He is permanently making residence in you through the Spirit of God, which means he is not going to leave you. And some of us need to hear that this morning. He is not leaving you. In fact, he would rather die for you than leave you, and that's precisely what he did. His love was so strong, and he loved you so much that he was willing to die for you. What makes you think that he's going to to, to leave? What makes you think there's something you're going to do that's going to kick him out of your life? Some of us need to hear the the assurance here of Paul's word that, that when we believe in Christ, it is the Spirit who dwells in us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're thinking right now, uh, what, what is it going to take for, for Jesus just to come to me one day and say, that's it, I'm out. That's it, I'm leaving. Well, you know what it didn't take? It didn't take the infinite suffering he endured on the cross. Because he went through that, and he didn't say, I'm out. He went all the way there for you. What makes you think he's going to leave you? When the Spirit comes inside of us, he makes permanent residence inside of us. And the reason why that is such good news for us is because he has already clothed you with those clothes and no matter how small you feel or no matter how far you feel like you've, you're on the trajectory to become more like your father, he has already clothed you. And his love for you is not dependent on how much you look like Christ today. His love for you is dependent on how much you are in Christ today, which is 100% because that is your identity. That's your nature. And the assurance is not just that. The assurance is much more than that in verse 11 because he says, not only that, I'm not, gonna, not only am I dwelling in you and not leave you, I'm going to raise you from the dead. You have everlasting life with me. That is the reality that protects and covers us from the darts of shame and condemnation that are so common to us, the accusation that are so common to us. Do you ever just feel like moments where you say, man, I can't really be a Christian. Look what I've done. If you were a believer, you wouldn't do that. When you feel those moments, you should say to that, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm a hypocrite. That's exactly why I need Christ. That's exactly why I'm united to him. That is the assurance here. And that is the assurance that can, that can empower us to actually come to the Lord's table to be challenged here. To honestly say to our souls, Lord, what are the things in my life right now that should be nauseating me that are not? Lord, what are, the, what are the things right now that I just need to, you to clean house in my life right now? Where are the areas that I need to surrender to you? Where, where are the moments where I need to feel that you actually empower me to live in the Spirit and to be alive in you when I'm reverting back to the flesh today? See, we can come to him, to the Lord's table now, and we can embrace this challenge to be changed. Not because if we're not changed, he's going to condemn you. No, because he's already been condemned for you. 
which means he has now freed you from condemnation and he has made you alive in his spirit. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.